This is how the speech ends. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must need come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. This is how President Lincoln finished his second inaugural address. Lincoln knew on some level that the fate of his presidency and the fate of the nation in which he presided over was ultimately in the hands of God. He understood that his fight to abolish slavery was a difficult one and one that he had committed his presidency to but he knew it was one that he could not overcome by himself. It must be the Lord who works. He also probably understood that on some level that this fight might one day claim his life. And a month after this address was made, President Lincoln was shot and killed. But what he did not live to see is that a month after his assassination, the Civil War would come to its ultimate end. In our day and age, we stand on the precipice of history. And we are in the same place as Lincoln. We are in the hands of God. And it doesn't matter what president takes the throne. It doesn't matter what rulers preside over us. At the end of the day, we find ourselves at God's mercy. And we find ourselves at God's mercy because ultimately God is in charge of the rulers because God has established the king. And we read this morning in Mark chapter 1 the inauguration of that king. The king that would come to be established not for four years, not for eight years, but for eternity. And before that inauguration can take place, preparations must be made. Before the banners can be unfurled, before the trumpet can sound, preparations must take place. And in our passage this morning, we read about those preparations. So read with me, if you will, Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read the first nine verses. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would use your word, that you would use these nine verses scribed thousands of years ago, to direct our paths today. May you shape the words that I speak so that they conform to your will and to your plans for us as individuals under Christ, but also for us corporately as Fisherville. We know that we are in your hands and at your mercy, and so we ask that you would be merciful to us. Speak to us this morning, and we pray these things for the sake of Christ. Amen. This morning, I hope that by the end of it, you will remember this. That the installment of King Jesus brings God's people hope because he provides salvation from judgment. The installment of King Jesus brings God's people hope because he provides salvation from judgment. And we're going to look at this in a couple of different ways. First... We're going to do a quick overview of why Mark is writing. What's he writing and how he compares to Matthew, Luke, and John. Next, we're going to look at the one who comes before. The one who is to make the preparations. And then we're going to end talking about the one who comes after. The one who we are all here for today. So, let's talk about Mark real quick. So, Mark was not an eyewitness to the events of Jesus. Mark probably wrote this book about 20 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. He was also likely a scribe of Peter. So these are are the events of Jesus from the perspective of Peter. And the reason we believe that this is to be true is that most of the events that involve Peter in the book of Mark are very vivid and very clear, as though the person who is dictating to Mark was an eyewitness maybe even the participant himself. And so we have the book of Mark as, as, a, as an overview of what Jesus went through in his life. Now Mark is not writing to Jews. Matthew and John are both written to Jewish audience. Luke and Mark are both written to non-Jewish audiences. Mark is likely writing to a, Roman, uh, a group of Romans. And his purpose for writing is to show the work that Christ has come to accomplish. And so, unlike the other Gospels, there's less time spent on the teachings of Jesus and more time spent on the actions of Jesus, what Jesus has come to do. 
And Mark writes at an incredibly rapid pace. He moves from one story to the next, just like that. The phrase immediately is used 41 times in this book, just to give you an indication on how quickly he's writing. And immediately Jesus rose, and immediately Jesus went out, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. So if you read through Mark, I mean, you're going to have to buckle your seatbelts because it goes really, really quickly. But his main focus, again, is on the works of Christ. And his intention is not just to show what Christ is doing, but also to show what, how Christ is redeeming. How his work is connected directly with his redemptive work. And we see this a lot of different ways. One of the key ways that we see this in Mark chapter 10, it says this, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Mark highlights how Jesus is coming to serve and to ransom and to redeem. And his first statement here in the passage that we just read also makes clear as to his goal of his writing. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants his readers to know the good news that Jesus is bringing. And so he starts with this very clear statement. Now, how does Mark differ from the other three gospels, the other three accounts of the life of Jesus? Like I suggested, Matthew and John are written to Jewish audiences. Matthew begins with a genealogy, begins with the family history of Jesus. And the reason he does this is to show that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David, the rightful heir to the throne of David, but also the fulfillment of the promises of Abraham and of David. When we go to John, also written to a Jewish audience, he begins with claims about the deity of Christ And the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh. And so written to a Jewish audience that would have difficulty believing that a man is God, he directs his attention there. Luke, on the other hand, is written to Theopolis. Not written to a Jew, written to a Greek. And so his goal is an apologetic of the proof of the claims of Jesus. And so he begins with an account, a true account of the births of John, who we're discussing today, as well as Jesus. And he focuses on Jesus' humanity. But Mark begins here. So why does he begin here? Well, let's explore that this morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. Now, where does he If he's saying this is the beginning, we need to consider where Mark begins. And where does he begin? Verse 2, as it is written. Notice that Mark does not say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus was born. He doesn't even say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus was baptized and began his ministry. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. See, the beginning of the gospel does not just begin when Jesus enters the scene. It begins when God makes a promise. As it is written. Now he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So this prophecy that Mark is bringing to mind is an Old Testament prophecy. And what he's saying to us, what he's signaling to his audience is that the good news is rooted in a promise of God. 
And if a promise of God, then the word of God. See, the good news is a promise. And if our hope is rooted in our promise, then our hope is rooted in the very words of God. And this has so many different nuances to it. Where we find our hope in the word of God. Well, we find our hope in the very words that God says. If we begin reading our Bibles from the book of Genesis, and we realize that that the sin and the depravity of Adam and Eve we share in, then our hope is found when God promises that our enemy will be crushed. Our hope is found in God's promises, in God's word. Our hope is also found in the incarnate word of God, Jesus himself. And our hope is also found in the the complete canon of scripture. Because we would confess that this is sufficient for life and godliness, so this is also sufficient for our hope. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begins with a word. A word from God. Now, what word does Mark pull out here? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now here, Mark is drawing upon two separate prophecies. Okay? Now he says Isaiah the prophet. Other translations or other manuscripts might even say as it is written in the prophets. Okay? So the reason it says this is because that first section, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, is actually pulled from Malachi. Malachi chapter 2 says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say... How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Did you notice the slight change between what Malachi is recording here and what Mark is recording over here. So what Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Yet Mark records it slightly differently. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. So in one passage, we have God speaking of himself, and then in another passage, we have God speaking of another who will come. So that, and, and in this section of Malachi, Malachi's prophecy concerns God's people facing judgment. You'll notice at the beginning of that passage that they are, they are questioning God and questioning God's judgment of them and, and saying that even though who's, those who do evil are blessed in the sight of God. But where is God's justice? And so they're questioning God. But God says, I will send my messenger. 
And so Malachi's prophecy is about God's people facing judgment and what he's going to do to save them. And the way he's going to do to save them is through judgment, okay? For he is like a refiner's fire. But even before that, who can endure the day of this coming? Who can stand before him? He is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. So there's this idea of fire and of judgment, but that is the way that God is going to bring the salvation of his people. And so now we need to look at the second prophecy. So that's, that's the first part out of Malachi, but the second part, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This comes from Isaiah chapter 40. It says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a pathway for our God. So again, we have this image of judgment, of of Jerusalem paying for her sins, but then God coming to her. And again, notice the change in language. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a pathway for our God. But in our passage in Mark, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So again, we have this, the, the, this allusion to someone else. So we have God calling these prophecies about himself, and then Mark saying, we're looking for another. We're looking for someone else to come. Now this passage of Isaiah is also a passage of salvation, because at this point, Israel is held captive by Babylon, awaiting rescue from God. So in both passages, we have this idea of God's people under judgment, awaiting God's salvation. And we have someone who's coming before. And then we have our passage in Mark. So, we have this messenger who's going to come and prepare. And prepare something for God. So whenever we read a passage like this, and if we're, say we're reading Mark for the first time, we have to ask, what kind of preparations does God need? Who needs to prepare anything for God? Isn't he the one who makes all things right? Isn't he the one who can make his own pathway? So what kind of preparations need to take place? And what I love about Mark is that he doesn't leave us hanging for long. So we have this messenger who's coming, preparing the way, a voice of crying in the wilderness, preparing the ways of the Lord, and then verse 4, John appeared. So the beauty of Mark is that he doesn't leave you waiting. He doesn't leave you hanging very long. If we have any question who that messenger is, boom, John appears. Okay? And what is John doing? What are the preparations that he's making on behalf of the Lord? John appeared baptizing and proclaiming. See, the preparations that are coming before God are baptism and proclamation. And even his proclamation is about his baptism. So see that. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So all of John's actions here are for the sake of repentance. 
his baptism and his proclamation are for the sake of repentance, a call for the repentance of sin. Now, notice that he is also physically in the wilderness. Just keep that in your mind. We'll explore that in just a minute. But what is his crying in the wilderness? What is his proclamation? It's an impassioned plea for the sake of the people. And these preparations are taking place because how will these people realize their need for the one who is to come after if they do not come to grips with the depth of their sin? If they do not come to grips with the depth of their sin, they will never realize their need for the one who is to come after, the one who is supposed to provide them salvation. Because up to this point, their only exposure to these things had been ritualistic, including their exposure to baptism. Baptism in the Jewish tradition at this time was to allow Gentiles to enter into Israel. If Gentiles had a desire to to enter into Israel and to worship the true and living God, they had to be ritually cleaned of their old defilements. They had to be washed clean before they could come and worship rightly with the people of Israel. And so for John to proclaim a baptism, for them to, to come to him in the Jordan and to be baptized would have been a radical idea to them because they had only seen it in this one fashion. But John is proclaiming, calling them to be baptized and to repent of their sin. So why baptism? And why in the wilderness? So if John is proclaiming all these things, if he's saying, you need to be baptized and you need to come out to the wilderness where, where, onto the banks of the river Jordan to be baptized and you need to repent of your sin, why here and why baptism? These are not just asides. And we might think, oh, we're Baptists, you should baptize. Okay, but why? Why is John baptizing and why is he in the wilderness? And why was the prophecy specific The voice of one crying in the wilderness. So if Mark is going to bring to mind this prophecy in the wilderness and then also tell us where John is is at, we've got to understand why. Well, think of it like this. Imagine for just a moment that we are in Jerusalem at this time. And we start to hear news of this man out of the city on the banks of the Jordan saying these radical and new ideas. And so we get up, we leave our houses, we leave the safety of the city, and we enter the wilderness to go to the banks of the Jordan. And on the banks of the Jordan, we see a massive crowd gathering. Crowds of people from from our neighbors to people who live across the country, all gathering to hear what this man has to say. And then we see this man begin to take people from the banks into the river and to baptize them. This would have called to mind of just the average Jew, the signs of the Exodus. They would have seen this this exit from their own homes into the wilderness, into the, into the waters, to be carried through water by someone else. All of these visual reminders are of a past exodus, but they are also physical signs 
of a new exodus, of a new exodus that has come to be saved, not from a land of slavery, but to be ransomed from a heart of slavery. So it's quite possible that many would have recognized these signs and these symbols. But it's also possible that if they hadn't realized it, if to, the, if to this point they're still not clear what they're seeing, it's also very likely that John is bringing to mind these things and verbally reminding them of where they're standing, why they're here, and why they're at the Jordan. Because it's obvious that John had a sense of his position. John had a real sense of his role. And why do we think that? Well, because of his attire. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This is not just a side. This is not just an anecdote. This is, oh, and by the way, this is how John was dressed, just so you can paint a mental image. No, Mark is making these things very clear because John is in the appearance of Elijah. We read in 2 Kings that that Elijah was wearing a garment of hair and a leather belt. And so if all these other signs had not made it clear enough to John's audience of who he was and what he was doing, his physical attire was another level, another layer here to make this image clear of what is occurring. And also the significance of what is occurring. This is not just a radical preacher who has come up with this new idea But they would continue to see these signs and, man, I've been taught about these things all my life. I've heard these things from when I was a young child and now I'm seeing some of these things take place. Now, if there was any question as to whether John's message was effective, Mark makes clear that it absolutely was. Go back up to verse five. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. See, it's one thing to leave your home to see a unique guy, to hear preaching that just, it's the talk of the town. Hey, have you seen the guy out by the river who's, who's shouting at these hordes of people? And then they're going into the river willingly to be dunked underwater by him. Have you seen this guy? So it's one thing to just spark the interest and be like, oh, I got to go see that. That's worth a Saturday night. And so they go and they see him. But then it says next, and then they were being baptized by him. So something about his message is is getting to the point where, okay, I've got to go in the water with him now. But then Mark takes it one further. They're not just being baptized by him, but they're confessing their sin. If there was any question as to the effectiveness of John's message, Mark makes clear that it's having an effect. Because not just they're going to him, not just they're being baptized by him, but they're confessing their sins to him. And what is Mark's whole purpose? What is John's whole purpose? To call for the repentance of sin. And how will these people realize their need for the Savior? When they realize the depth of their sin. Just the, the, the mercy of God to use all of these circumstances, all of these signs, the message of John, to soften the hearts of the people. This is the response. To be baptized and to confess their sins. 
But John realizes that his purpose doesn't end there. His purpose doesn't end with, well, if I just get these people aware of their sin, then I've done my job. He realizes that his purpose extends further. His purpose extends as a signpost. Verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. See, John realizes that he is the one who comes before, but his work is nothing if there is no one that comes after. After me comes he who is mightier than I. So let's talk real quickly about John's description of this one that comes after. So he begins with the thought of his worthiness, of the worthiness of the one who comes after. Or, I'm, I'm sorry, the mightiness. After me comes he who is mightier than I. And so John describes this man as mighty. And, and we get an idea of what he's trying to say. It's not just a matter of, well, this man is, is strong and, and physically you know, built and has a large stature. He's not mighty in those ways, but he's mighty in a different way. In the book of John, we get this recording of, of, of John's statement. John wore, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. See, John understands the mightiness of the one who is to come after him because he understands the deity of the one who is to come after him. He understands this man that I'm pointing to, this man that I'm drawing attention to, is more than just a mere man. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who comes after because he was the one who came before. He is the son of God. And so the readers of Mark, again, let's, let's just imagine for a second that we're reading Mark for the very first time. And we hear this testimony about this man who is mighty. And then this man comes on the scene. If we read critically, we might question, okay, is John's testimony true? Is this man really mighty? Can they really live up to the bill? And if we follow the narrative of Mark, we find out really quickly, he fits the bill. He is mighty in his works. He is mighty in his deeds. He is mighty in his salvation. Because time after time, Mark shows very clearly Jesus is the one performing the redeeming work, redeeming sinful man unto himself to ultimately redeem creation unto himself. And so reading the book of Mark, we get finished and we can say, yes, this man who comes after John is indeed mighty. But he goes on. He doesn't just describe his mightiness. He also discusses his worthiness. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now again, to understand these visuals, we have to put ourselves in the place of Jews at this time. Okay? To touch someone else's feet was an act of uncleanliness, both spiritually 
and physically, okay? Because people's feet at this time were absolutely disgusting, okay? They walked in sandals wherever they went, and they stepped in whatever they might step in that might be on the road. I'll let you draw your own mental images about what that might be, okay? But no, pave, no, no paves, there's donkeys and camels and every other type of livestock, okay? And so what John is doing is he's creating this mental image. I am not worthy to touch this man's feet, to untie his sandals. Even though he stepped in the muck, even though his feet might be smelly and gross, I'm not even worthy to bow down before this, to be in the lowest position possible and to serve this man. I am not worthy. Charles Spurgeon says this of John's account. He felt that the son of God was so infinitely superior to himself that he was honored if only to be permitted to be the meanest slave in his employ. He would not allow man to attempt comparisons between himself and Jesus. He felt that none for a moment could be allowed. Now this honest assessment of himself as less than nothing in comparison with his master is greatly to be imitated by us. John is to be commended and admired for this, but better still, he is to be carefully copied. To consider the worthiness of Christ, the worthiness of the very son of God come condescended to be with us. And if we continue to read this narrative, we're going to find an account of where Jesus does not allow others to serve himself by washing his feet, but rather he washes the feet of those whom he serves. What a great picture of the condescension of Christ to serve others when he is the one worthy of service, to lower himself when he is the one who is most worthy of being exalted. Yet he comes to guard or to regard our helpless estate. But then he talks about the work that Christ will participate in. So this is who this man who comes after will be. He will be mighty. He will be worthy. But then he will do something. Verse 8. I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we talked a little bit about what baptism meant and what it was meant to allude to. So it's even likely that John would have been talking about the images himself. To imagine going underwater to be saved through water. See, in, in an Israelite's mind, in a Jewish mind, they think of water and they relate it to judgment. They don't think of a, of a playful day on the ocean They don't think of a day out on the lake skiing. They think of the unknowable danger that resides at the bottom of the body of water. They think of danger. They think of judgment. They think of God's judgment. And so John baptizes them in water. But Jesus will baptize with the Spirit. So so why is this important? Well, the Israelites were originally saved from Egypt through water, okay? 
And so they would imagine, okay, water held up on either side, at any moment able to collapse and to crush me. But even if the water doesn't collapse and crush me, I've got Egypt on my tail, ready to run a sword through my chest. This is the mental image of what it means to be baptized, to be saved through water. But then John says, I have baptized you with water, symbolizing those things, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, for those of us who are in our sins, we do not stand with water on either side. We do not stand with Egypt on our tail. We stand with the wrath of God held up only by the mercy of God. See, it is not from an external enemy that we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from the judgment of God that we have all well deserved. And so the baptism that God brings us through Jesus by the Spirit is a salvation from the judgment of God. See, the doom behind us is not Egypt. The doom behind us is God's just wrath. And so the baptism of the Spirit secures our hopes that we are not any longer bound under the wrath of God. Now, how can Jesus make an, or how can John make such an astonishing claim such as this? Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came. So again, if there's any question as to who he's talking about, Okay, after me comes he who is mightier than I, and then Jesus comes, okay? Again, Mark makes this very clear. And, and just as a side note, if you are an unbeliever, or you are a relatively new believer, or if you're a believer who is discipling unbelievers or new believers, I would very much encourage you to use the book of Mark as a resource, because it is a very clear book as to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And it's also written to audiences that wouldn't easily pick up on the nuances of Jewish tradition. Okay? So I would very much encourage you to use Mark as a resource to, to either answer your own questions about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, or to answer the questions of others. Okay? Mark is a great resource in that way because he does stuff like this. Okay? This guy John's talking about, Boom, and then Jesus comes, okay? He's on the scene. He's here. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the river. Now, in this particular account, we don't get the inter interchange between Mark and Jesus, or between John and Jesus, saying, well, shouldn't I be baptized by you? And then he says, no, for the fulfillment of righteousness, you must baptize me, okay? So that's the account we don't get. But what we do get here is that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Because the baptism of Jesus ultimately secures the satisfaction of God for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Because when Jesus enters the waters of judgment... Ultimately, God does not hold the waters up on either side, but he lets them collapse. When Jesus is on the cross, God does not hold the waters of judgment up. 
like he did for Israel. He does not crush Egypt instead. Instead, he allows his son to come under judgment. And so these prophecies here that Mark's pulling out, these prophecies of Israel being saved, God's people being saved through judgment, what they don't understand is they're being saved because the judgment is not coming upon them, but on someone else. And so Jesus' entrance into the water is not one of safety, but it's one of him knowing that God's judgment will ultimately come to bear on his shoulders and he will indeed be crushed. But the good news is, is that it's Jesus in the water where we belong. And the good news is, is that John does not leave Jesus in the water to drown. John raises Jesus up as a symbol that he will one day rise out of those waters of judgment. Having proved himself worthy before God, having him proven himself completely righteous before God on our behalf. Our hope is found in the waters because Jesus came through the waters. That is why we need the baptism of the Spirit because we need to be saved from God, because Jesus has earned that for us. Jesus bears the weight of the water. And so I would encourage you this morning to consider those things. As a believer, consider how Jesus has borne your punishment and how you can expend your life as John had in obedience to him. But if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I would encourage you to consider and know that God's wrath is upon those of us who have committed treason against him. And the Bible makes clear that that's every single one of us. And so if you find yourself this morning under the wrath of God, under the judgment that you deserve, know that freedom is available to you because Christ has borne the weight of the water. And God has brought him safely through. Let's pray. Father, your goodness 